This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Cryer, today's host. Today I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Cody Dodge Ewart about his 2022 book, Making Schools American, Nationalism and the Origins of Modern Educational Politics, out now with Johns Hopkins University Press. Making Schools American investigates how a generation of progressive era school reformers touted the capacities of the public school system to instill national values, equalise socio-economic relations and strengthen democracy, all by creating model American citizens out of high school students. Investigating turn of the 20th century, New York, Utah and Texas in that order, Dr. Hewitt uncovers the educational promises and ideals that underlay a historic expansion in US educational provision in the early 20th century and also provides the backdrop to debates concerning the mission of public education in America that remain very present today. To introduce my guest, Cody Dodge Hewitt is an associate editor at the Montana Historical Society. Originally from Power, Montana, he earned his BA and MA in history from the University of Montana and a PhD from New York University. He worked as a managing editor at the South Dakota Historical Society Press before taking up his current role in Montana. Dr. Ewart, warm welcome to the New Books Network. To start off with a traditional New Books Network question, could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to studying history, and really where this project started from? Well, first of all, thanks for having me today. I'm always excited to talk about the book, and um, it's great to be on the New Books Network. I've listened to a handful of these as of most people, so yeah, it's great to be talking to you today. Um, so, you know, the where did this project start from? How did I start studying history thing? I mean, that goes pretty, that, that can go pretty deep. Um, you know, I kind of came to history relatively late in my academic career. Um, it's not necessarily something as a as a student that is, you know, it's not necessarily something as a, as a kid that I always knew I wanted to do. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my main interests were just like, you know, music, basketball, you know, that was the sort of stuff that I was interesting, interested in. But, you know, the thing was that 
I, I would really dive deep. I, I really wanted to know what the context of all these things I liked was, you know, it wasn't really enough for me to just like a band or to appreciate the nuance of the triangle offense or something. I really wanted to kind of dig into this stuff. I read as much as I could about it. Um, so fast forward to college. And like a lot of college students, especially, you know, I was a first gen college student. I'm from a rural area. Um, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I wasn't sure what I was doing. Um, but I, I kind of remember taking an intro history class. And that was really my first introduction to history as a way of thinking. And it really grabbed me. And I thought, well, I can see myself doing that um, in part because, I, you know, I already liked kind of digging into things in that way. So, so it just kind of really grabbed me and it was interesting. You know, at first I thought I'd probably teach high school somewhere in rural Montana, like where I grew up, but I came to really love the research and writing part too much, um, which led me to grad school. So now to address the second part of the question about the project, and this is kind of like the music and sports thing actually kind of intersects here because my first big research project I did as an undergrad an undergraduate was about controversies surrounding the national anthem at sporting events. Um, so doing that led me to work more on kind of American nationalism broadly and kind of following that kind of national anthem thread. I started to look at the origins of patriotic rituals and rhetoric in schools. So uh, by the time I started working on my master's degree, that was uh, my topic. And I was kind of looking more at the classroom side of the equation back then. Um, but, you know, when I began my PhD program, I started to look outward and kind of think about how communities, parents and reformers themselves really viewed these practices and how they fit into this broader story of progressive school reform. So that's the kind of soup to nuts um, version. Great. That's fantastic to hear. Um, it's always amazing to hear um, the varied routes by which people come to this. And really exciting to hear that background. Um, you know, as you say, this book is situated and it's what makes it so powerful. It's situated in a point where, as many students of American history will know, these debates about American nationalism are absolutely everywhere. What it means to be American, who's American, who's un-American. To kind of start us off thinking about this project, Making Schools American, could you talk us about why nation building seemed so important to these people, to these historical actors at this time, again, at the turn of the 20th century, and how your project and how considering the role of schools in these kind of debates, um, you know, sheds a different light on this kind of traditional um, uh, understanding of the era? Yeah, well, and uh, in, in that's... That, that's great too. That's a great question. I mean, and so for one, uh, it, this is a transnational story, right? I mean, this is after all uh, the age of nationalism. Um, European governments are also pouring a lot of effort into schools and citizenship training into school systems. And so educators in the U.S., um, in addition to just people in the U.S. generally, they, they see that clearly. But you know, on the education side, they lack these sort of centralized national school systems that they have in Europe. Uh, Americans have this sort of patchwork system that's very kind of state focused, local. Um, so they have this sort of challenge of sort of making kind of a coherent national citizenship training program out of this, out of, out of you know, again, this patchwork 
that we have in America. Uh, so that's kind of the important educational context. And of course, yeah, th there's these massive changes happening in every corner of the country. There's these huge de demographic and economic shifts, obviously, in sort of the Northeast and the East Coast. We see that in the form of industrialization, immigration, the the TIONs everyone talks about in the period, right? Um, um, those are two among the many, right? <laughs> so... So, I mean, those are these obvious contexts, but they're also um, they're also raising these big questions about the future of the country and how we kind of make sense of these changes and how we adapt. Um, there's a lot of talk about meeting the challenges of the 20th century. Uh, that's a kind of constant refrain you hear. Um, so, you know, with the immigration question, especially, there's also this angle of, well, how do we make these people and their children into American citizens? Um, the answer almost always, in some way or another, was education. Um, so then meanwhile, you know, in other parts of the country, in the South, it's not been that long since the Civil War. And there's still this lingering question of how to sort of reincorporate these like rebel states back into the nation. Um, not to mention the kind of fiercely contested question of what, what the role that Black Americans are going to have in that process, especially after the uh, the kind of premature end of the Reconstruction era. So how do we make sure that rising generation in the South really understands their place in the nation and understands themselves as part of the United States? Um, education, again, is most often the answer to that question. So out West, there's something else entirely different going on, right? I mean, the pace of settlement and conquest of that region really increases dramatically in the late 19th century. Um, you know, the map of the continental U.S., as we know it today, is kind of completely filled in by 1920. But in like 1880, that's not the case. I mean, very few of those states were states um, 40 years earlier. So creating those governments, creating sort of functioning parts of the nation. That's a big question. How do we do that? How do we square that circle? Um, and of course, the pro that process is also leading to kind of the disp dispossession of native lands, right? Um, and that's also a crucial thing happening here. And again, education at all angles of this is kind of posited as the answer to both all of these questions. How do you make these new states American? How do you deal with you know, the so-called Indian question out West. So yeah, there's, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's <laughs> to say the least a lot going on and a lot of it pivots around these questions of nation building um, and meeting, uh, you know, these challenges posed by the coming century and keeping pace with what people in the U.S. see as their sort of uh, counterparts or maybe even their rivals abroad. Right. Great. Yeah. And it's, it's worth saying, I said a question ago about the strengths of this book. Another strength of this book is, as I said in the introduction, covering New York, Utah, and Texas. Those are three states which give very different perspectives on this and very different case studies of this movement. Um, and we'll come to that later. Um, to introduce the work a bit further, I wonder if you could just introduce us to the main historical actors um, in this work. You class them kind of as a progressive reformers. But I wondered if you could talk a bit more about what their backgrounds were, why they came to education, and why were they so keen on selling the advantages of schooling, the benefits of schooling? Could you be cynical and say this was kind of a process of 
justifying their employment, justifying funds, or was there, you know, was this attachment to nation building more profound and more ideological and intellectual than that? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny because it seems like every, uh, and th- I guess this is broadly true of the progressive era too, but it seems like every educator in any sort of cis- position of power during this period saw themselves as a progressive or as a reformer. Um, you don't really see anyone staking their claim on, you know, let's stay the course or, you know, stasis. There's not a lot of arguments for stasis at the time, right? Um, you know, that's why we can call it the progressive era. This was just like a language that people used to describe seemingly everything. You know, it was just the way people talked. Um, so seemingly all of these educators are seeing themselves as forward thinking, as progressive. Um, and generally when, you know, I'm talking of the, the actors I'm talking about are often school administrators uh, who, you know, likely started as teachers and just sort of climbed the promotional ladder to the point where they're principals, superintendents, uh, state educational officials who sometimes come from just the world of politics. But, you know, often there's some sort of educational background there. Um, So, again, all these people want to brand themselves as forward thinking, as progressive. So in that sense, yeah, like nation building is important to them. I mean, that's what they see as the point of the entire enterprise. And it's also something that they can use to sort of frame what they do uh, in a way that lends gravity to it um, in the clearest way. Um, You know, schools, as many of them will say, are what's going to lead us into the 20th century, what will allow us us to meet the challenges of this rapidly changing world. but yeah, to be sure, like status is a part of that education uh, is a part of that equation, um, and it always has been for educators in the U.S., right? And largely, that's because they don't really they've never had a lot of it. Um, you know, it's not a high powered uh, position uh, then, or as we see still now. Um, so. So, yeah, there's is there a degree of kind of self-aggrandizement going on there with their adoption of this kind of this kind of very broad language? Like probably. But I also don't see a lot of evidence of insincerity in the sources. Um, You know, it's it's very easy to read these things cynical cynically. But uh, at the same time, I don't think we have any reason to doubt that these people believe their own hype. Right. I mean, seems to me like they really did feel like this mattered. Um, saying schools make the nation, of course, I mean, that's a good argument for job security at the turn of the 20th century. But, you know, if these people didn't believe that on some level, they probably wouldn't have lasted very long in the profession, um, which is, you know, then is now not a lucrative field, nor very high status. So, so yeah, um, I think there, I think there's a lot of buy-in among the administrators, certainly, and uh, the rank and file teachers to the extent that we can really gauge that, which, you know, is one of like the weaknesses in the sources is we just, it's hard to get average teacher voices. But yeah, on the administrative level, uh, absolutely. Great, great. Um, Maybe another tension within these group of progressive reformers, as ever with American nationalism, it's divided. There are civic and what we might call liberal nationalist ideas intermingling with more racially based, more exclusivist, uh, more nativist ideas of what it means to be an American. Um, I, I turned to the footnotes, as I often do when reading these books, and saw on page 173, 
they categorized the reformers' visions as liberal nationalists, but note that they also had decidedly liberal elements, that those two um, elements are intermingling. You also later on note attention between the new nationalism of the clergyman, Josiah Strong, a very kind of famous and renowned proponent for American exceptionalism, and the more social gospel aligned movement of a figure like Francis Bellamy. That's on page 47. So how did these reformers' visions account for the world of race, account for the world of, you know, not only these debates about Americanism, but the realities of the American empire at this point as well? And as you say, the, the process of indigenous appraisal that's going on, uh, particularly in these Western states at this time. Yeah. Uh, so first, I mean, always love a good footnote question. Um, you know, delightful to be in the company of folks who read the footnotes. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, um, you know, nationalism, and I think I hope this is one of the takeaways people get uh, from the book, it, it's, it's a very fungible concept around the 20th century. Um, you have people from a lot of different ideological perspectives, all the way from your Josiah Strong's to your Francis, Francis Bellamy's, and even some people whose politics were you know, even more to the, what we may think of now as the left than Bellamy even, right? Um, so, you know, I understand that on the surface, you know, if you're looking at these things on the surface, it can seem like all the folks who championed patriotic education, this this sort of stuff at the time, were on the same page politically. Um, but that's really not the case. Instead, they all tend to believe that whatever their particular vision is of what America is and what it can be is what's going to win out in the end. Um, they all use, they all sort of see nationalism and sort of national development and state building as a means toward different kinds of ends. You know, they embrace this sort of celebratory and kind of public facing valences of this in the same way, but they kind of have different ideas about what this is all kind of leading to. Um, so in regard to race and ethnicity, uh, this is particularly true as well, because different reformers have different ideas about what education means in that sense, you know, uh, and let me be clear that we're typically on, for the most part, talking about white reformers here. Um, that's, these are the folks we're talking about. So, you know, these white reformers, they tend to view education either as sort of a true equalizer or as kind of a sorting mechanism. So there's this sense among some educators that anyone, regardless of race or ethnicity, can become an upstanding citizen, a key part of this, you know, democratic public that they're trying to build. However, the catch there is that that generally requires a complete adoption of sort of white Protestant culture, right? Um, these people are not kind of cultural pluralists uh, in any sense, Um there's definitely a sense of kind of cultural chauvinism, like the superiority of the standard traditional American way of doing things. Um, and then, and this is more of your kind of Josiah Strong outlook, maybe, um, there are those who still wanted racial and ethnic minorities to receive an education, but one that would kind of tailor them for separate subservient roles in society, right? There's no notion from certain corners that like the education we're giving to these different groups of people is going to elevate them to our level, which is the way some people would talk. Um, so 
both of those strains are kind of at work in the Native American boarding schools, um, right? I think they're a really good uh, lens through which to view both of these ideas at work. You know, when you see these before and after photos that they would show Native students, that they would distribute as propaganda, basically, you know, the implication was that we can make these kids white. Um, you know, that's kill the Indian, save save the man. That's the, the, the quote that always gets used. Um, but at the same time, most of those schools aren't typically giving those students a classical education, right? So while the framing is that like, oh, well, we can take these, we can sort of pluck these kids from their tribes, from the traditional ways of life, and just elevate them into, you know, the finest, most upstanding American citizen. They're not really giving them those kinds of educations, right? They're training them for lives in manual labor or domestic labor. And of course, you know, we know now that those schools were often kind of unflinchingly brutal, these students were in many cases not treated well at all, to say the least. But, you know, the public facing side of that was really different. It was like, wow, look at the magic that these people can work as educators. Um, and so public school leaders actually saw that as kind of an inspiration um, of, you know, an example of this is really the transformative power of education at work. So. So, yeah, I think that's great. Great. And um, while we're talking about the limitations of this vision, it's fair to say that gender also plays an important role here. Um, you have these really colorful and beautifully illustrated and recounted scenes of parades um, in various locations. Um, the Columbus Centennial Parade in Brooklyn, um, page 49. The Pioneer Jubilee in Utah, page 95. All of these have very specific roles for what women who go to these schools um, are allowed to do and allowed to display to the local populace. You talk about, um, on page 49, quote, the gendered ideal of citizenship. Could you explain how that operated? I'm particularly interested if there was any pushback against that, given um, it's worth mentioning here that many of these reformers, many of these progressive educators that you are talking about we're also women. Yeah, that's, you know, how women fit into the kind of citizenship equation here is really fascinating. Um, you know, in the West, of course, during this period, we're seeing the earliest successes of the suffrage movement, right? Um, in Utah, specifically, you know, Utah and Wyoming were at the leading edge of the suffrage movement in terms of kind of giving women the right to vote. Um, but of course, you know, Easterners saw suffrage in Utah as a way for Mormons to manipulate women and to keep the church in power. Um, but, you know, generally outside of these places where women can vote and they are allowed a larger say in matters of governance, you know, in the West specifically, the role of women as citizens is framed in terms of their value as future mothers, as homemakers, and to some extent as teachers. So that's kind of what you see in some of these public parades or parades as women um, or young schoolgirls, I should say, uh, kind of filling the role as we're the future nurturers, the boys are the future leaders and the soldiers. That's the kind of classic dynamic there. Though, again, the teaching thing is where this kind of becomes interesting because of course teaching was one of the few routes that women had at the time to elected office or to serving in kind of important positions of power and it actually plays a really critical role in advancing the suffrage movement in several states 
um, school suffrage, which was the ability of women to vote on educational issues, uh, in many cases preceded full suffrage. So, you know, this stereotype of women as nurturers, as kind of natural teachers, is actually something that leaders in the suffrage movement could use to their advantage, because women could prove their sort of civic competence by serving on school boards and as, you know, city, county, state school leaders. Um, you know, I don't get too much into that in the book, but I mean, that's that's part of what's happening here. I mean, that's part of the dynamic that we see with um, some of these women school leaders, right? It's This is a way to sort of assert authority and competence while still sort of fitting into that larger a perception of, you know, women's sort of proper role in society. And, you know, that actually, that sort of opened those doors in a different way. But yeah, you know, a lot of this, what you see from the top going on here is generally just kind of the more stereotypical view of how, uh, you know, women serve as um, the role they play in sort of nurturing great men into leadership or something like that right but yeah there but there's another side of that story too and you know women's key role in education as teachers and later as administrators is is part of that in a different way so yeah fascinating fascinating um much like on race it kind of seems that this is not a single movement right there are lots of strands to this and there are lots of um ideological divides and intellectual divides and operational divides um which again this book um comes across really well um finally before we kind of move to the specific chapters and the states i wondered about how this educational program how these na nation building institutions are demonstrating their value on the national stage as i said in the last question there are lots of points in this book where you, you take the reader to these big parades these big state days these national holidays George Washington Day in Salt Lake City, the Columbus Centennial, as I mentioned earlier, and really interestingly, Arbor Day, which is quite a unique holiday in that it's set up to promote arboriculture, culture, even uh, in Nebraska, and then becomes kind of this patriotic ritual. Um, why was displaying the benefits of education through such um, publicly visible spectacles important to these educators? And what might we learn from that about the relationship between these schools this idea of what those schools should do and their communities yeah you know um, the arbor day thing is really one of the one of the things that surprised me the most in my research like i really didn't expect arbor day to play a key role in this project um <laughs> and the fact that it does is sort of delightful in a way um uh but you know i mean arbor day is just it, it it's such a it it, it's kind of back to that very original purpose now. It's just like you go plant some trees, right? So to see that there's this sort of moment in time, this extended moment in time, where it's this very, very important part of this larger movement uh, was really fascinating for me. And, you know, I hope that people that read the book kind of enjoy that stuff because I really liked writing it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, you know, in the early common school days, right, in the early 19th century, educators, you know, had a tough time getting parents to care about 
schools and to even kind of come visit the school like it was sort of pulling teeth you know i'm i'm reviewing this new book this it's a it's a it's a pretty great book by wade morris it's called report cards a cultural history um so sort of spoiling my review here uh, by saying it's 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 interesting and good but um, but he points out in the first chapter of the book that that's actually one of the main reasons that the report card is invented right it's a way of sort of bringing the school to parents to sort of say hey here's what's going on here um and here it is in sort of a very understandable way like here's how your kid is doing and that kind of worked to get you know some interest going on there and of course it also helps get parents on the side of the teacher um because they can see it from the teacher's side, you know, how the kid's doing, right? Um, but, but you know, because they because they often didn't care before they had kind of tangible ways of seeing that, right? So along those lines, these school celebrations develop as a way to sort of promote the school and to cast what's going on there in a positive light. Um, you know, you can showcase students' work, you can show them, you know, doing fun presentations and doing things for the community and that sort of suggests that, hey, maybe this isn't such a bad thing after all. I mean, they also really help cast schools as community centers, which of course is a role in a lot of communities that mainly churches fill before. So as a result of the school being this kind of community center, that can bring together folks who might otherwise stick in their kind of particular church community together. Um, so, it, so it sort of has that sort of effect. You know, the Arbor Day uh, things are a great example of this too, right? Because they serve a dual purpose. They beautify the school grounds. You plant trees, makes the school, it look, makes it look better. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. You see some of these older pictures of schools when they're first built. And often it's literally a building in the middle of kind of a barren field. Uh, you know, these old school photos are really striking. Um, so, you know, Arbor Day tree planting, it sort of just helps make them look like cozier environments. It looks nicer and it brings people over and, you know, they would often sing patriotic songs. They'd fly the flag. They would do things like that to sort of also, you know, again, signal that there's there's a bigger thing going on here, too. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a way to signal that there's this broader this broader project that we're all a part of by sending our kids to school. And, you know, tellingly now, hey, look, you're you're at the school and look, there's a big American flag flying atop the building now. Right. So it's a very local institution. It serves a local pur pur purpose, but um, it also helps make clear that there's a bigger picture thing happening here, too. So right. this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real P.O.S.? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. 
Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Great. Um, yeah, as I said, to do the parades, the spectacle, and I'm glad you enjoyed writing it because it was really good passage to read and really exciting to read as well the spectre really comes across um in this book um and that other days yeah the the bit that most surprised me as well um not knowing about the intricacies of nebraska politics um so it's really exciting to read about that um <laughs> to kind of move to the individual states you move through um to talk about maybe chapters three and four um you've kind of opened the story by talking about new york where a lot of these discourses a lot of these ideas come from then you turn to utah um which has an exceptionally successful public schooling system public schooling project um in the late 19th century that you argue fulfills a very specific purpose um it celebrates the state's reputation um it celebrates the capacity of utahns and specifically the mormon population there um to show their american right that there are American ideals, American institutions growing in the state. Could you briefly, and I know this is quite difficult to summarize <laughs> quickly, um, tell us about what's going on in the educational politics of Utah and kind of maybe why you chose that case study and what that case study reveals about this wider national um, school building effort? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had a I wish I had a kind of a sophisticated rationale for why I, I chose Utah here. Um, and it, but I can say it was really just a hunch. I, I thought, I thought, man, I wonder what's going on. I bet Utah is, would be interesting here. Um, you know, not really knowing, right. I, I, I knew I needed, I, I knew I wanted to go West with the study study and I wasn't sure exactly where to go. I was like, well, California has been done a lot, you know, let's, let's think of something interior. Um, and so I just, I've always been fascinated by Utah. It's just, you know, I think the story of Utah, if you're thinking about individual state stories is, is really unique in American history because of the outside role of the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints in the state. Right. So I just kind of had a hunch that maybe there'd be something here. And so just when I started looking, it became clear like, oh yeah, this is, this is perfect. Um, Utah's piece in this story is turns out to be really fascinating. Um, so in the territorial days, there's no centralized public school system in Utah territory. Now that's not to say there aren't any schools or, or that there aren't any free schools. But they're generally known to be local schools that are affiliated with the church, that is the, the LDS church, which is by far the kind of dominant institution in the state, socially and politically. And it, I mean, the territory at the time, the territory which would become a state. Um, so for Utah to earn statehood, uh, there's some conditions it has to meet because there's this whole matter of polygamy that needs to be resolved. Um, and Easterners are very up in arms about the sort of known practice of polygamy among members of the church. Um, so, so that's part of it. But, you know, creating a centralized school system also turns out to be a condition of this, uh, not only like ending polygamy, but also, you know, you need to send these kids to centrally controlled state schools. Um, the idea being that that will make it harder for 
the church to sort of uh, control what is and isn't taught in the schools, right? It's coming from a central source. Uh, it has a curriculum that uh, people uh, at higher levels of government can sort of monitor and oversee, right? I mean, that's sort of the thinking. Um, so again, like you have these people from the East looking into Utah who are seeing public schooling as a way to Americanize the state right, to sort of iron out what they see as these sort of weirdnesses about it and make it a sort of a, a legible and normal part of the country. Uh, so again, thinking back to what I was saying about how a lot of these reformers reviewed race, there's a clear parallel with how they see the Latter-day Saints. Um, but the church in Utah also comes to see public schooling as a way to prove their own patriotism. You know, that they're just as American as any kind of run-of-the-mill Protestant. So both sides come out of this thinking that they're responsible for the fairly remarkable growth of the school system in the state, which, you know, quickly gets this sterling reputation nationally. Um, Utah's, so Utah's very quickly upheld as this example of the transformative power of schooling. Um, you know, you have a lot of reformers using these examples of like, wow, look how great the school system is to say, like, you know, this was a wasteland. It was there's nothing going on educationally, which, of course, wasn't entirely true. But they could sort of say, like, look at what this did. It sort of transformed this place that was just this backward provincial, you know, controlled by this what they would sort of frame as this weird weird church and now these people are are just american as apple pie right um meanwhile the latter-day saints could say the same they could say hey look this just proves that we belong we're just as patriotic as anyone we can we can be we can out american anybody right they're just as committed to the strengthening of the nation as anyone so so yeah um the, the utah example really helps further this kind of bigger educational project uh yeah fantastic <laughs> going to the opposite end of the spectrum chapter five goes south to texas where it's fair to say there's initially some concern to put it lightly about public education about the building of public education schools and the kind of influences that might have on children um you very carefully trace how texans come to terms with this project essentially comes to terms with this move and kind of appropriate it in certain directions. Um, for example, on page 127, you state that, quote, the nationalistic cast of public education provided a comforting example of how progress and tradition could coexist. And on page 163, that, um, quote, educational progress came only once white elites agreed that it could help, help prop up even the status quo. Obviously, there's an immense amount of kind of calculation and bargaining and interest being served there um what I, I guess it's kind of an obvious question but what made texas's case quite so unique but more to the point of it not only why is it unique but what have been the legacies of that uniqueness um maybe if we're to look in the aftermath um of this movement going into the 1930s and 40s and 50s yeah you know again texas is just another one of those places uh like you know states like you know utah that is kind of it sort of has its own its own history i mean it's the only it's i mean no other no other state you know none of its other neighbors were its own republic briefly right i mean <laughs> that's its own 
thing. Um, and it sort of fits in so many different parts, just in part by virtue of being a huge state, right? I mean, it fits in so many different parts of the nation. Like it's Southern, it's part of the South, you know, politically in so many ways, but it's also a Great Plains state. It's also kind of a Western state and it's a border state with Mexico, which is very crucial to its history and what happens in Texas politics now. So it's a really unique place and you can sort of, you can look at a lot of different angles by sort of studying Texas. So early on, there's pushback to kind of early progressive school reform attempts in Texas because many people in the state don't really see the need to give everyone a modern education or they're suspicious of what that might mean for the place, um, to say the least. Now, a large part of that is concern coming from from, you know, white elites that educating black citizens and Mexican Americans could upset the pecking order. Um, There's also kind of a general sense that rural people generally don't need the same kind of instruction that they're more kind of well-to-do or well-positioned counterparts in sort of centers of power in the state might receive. Um, You know, there's just kind of a general notion of like, how is that relevant to the life of a farmer? You know, why do they need this kind of an education, which people had, you know, of course, people had encountered that in the East Coast, too, um, in states like New York. But often those matters were settled earlier in the 19th century. Um, people came around in those smaller communities to the the purpose and the usefulness of schools earlier on in Texas that lingered for much longer. And in part, I think kind of the race and class elements there are we're just a bit stronger deterrence to the adoption, to be sure. Um, so the task for the reformers who wanted to bring Texas up to speed with the rest of the com- country, because this is the other point, Texas and a lot of the other states in the South, you know, legged very far behind in most sort of standard educational metrics um, anywhere else in the country. You know, uh, other states uh, were sort of lapping these places in terms of just basic things like literacy rates, school attendance, all of that stuff. So, you know, the school of, school reformers, the school leaders in the state, they're prideful people. They believe in the bigger project of schools. They want Texas to have a strong education system. They want to be part of that national conversation that's going on, too. So they have to try to thread this needle. Um And largely they do that by appealing to kind of ideas of Texas pride as much as they do national pride. Um, You know, they're invoking invoking the legacy of Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin a lot. Uh, And they try to tell people like, hey, look, things are changing around us. And if we don't change too, we'll really be left in the dust. Um, So it helps them make these arguments that the racial politics of schooling begin to kind of tilt in a direction that some of these elites and some of these people that are skeptical of, uh, you know, of this sort of massification of education, sort of giving everyone access to schools, that people who are suspicious of that could kind of get behind finally, right? Um, Over time, the argument that there's, you know, different tracks, that there's different tracks of school for different groups, that really kind of begins to win out, um, especially with the rise of eugenics. So it becomes clear that they can offer kind of separate, unequal schooling to certain students. Um, And that, you know, many of the reformers by that time, which is, you know, closer to 1920, 
around World War One and after, were arguing that was actually the much more efficient and progressive way of organizing your schools. Um, so modernizing the system becomes a much easier sell when that is what's construed as progressive. And that's really what you see happening across the South with kind of the rise of Jim Crow, right? Um, there's, you know, people are are much, uh, they're, they're happier to assent to the creation of schools for other people if they can be assured that they're not gonna be a threat, you know? They're not gonna be a threat to their status and to their position in society. Um, kind of economically or socially. So, so yeah, that's kind of the, that's how the story kind of evolves over time in Texas. So great, great. And we'll talk about the modern day consequences of that, which I'm sure are um, on the top of people's minds right now um, in a little bit. Um, first, maybe one last question. Methodologically, there's a real trend, you know, maybe for the last 20, 30 years, even in the history of, in the history of the education to prioritize the voice and perspective of the students. I'm wondering how does this process, this initiative, this project look different from the eyes of students? And particularly maybe um, if you could kind of speculate, the generation that go in these schools, they come to power and political and economic and academic prominence during you know the 1930s and 1940s, the most um, profound era of American um, intervention in the world and America asserting itself in its ideals and nation building on the international arena. I, I do wonder if that's at all a coincidence or if um, this nation building project that you're talking about has a direct influence on its, on the children receiving it and what they go on to do after they finish their education. Yeah, and, and that's a fantastic question. And, it, and uh, honestly, I wish I had a clearer sense of that. Um, Again, it's a source problem to some extent, but, you know, there are some cons conclusions we can draw out of that. You know, at the very least, the degree to which nationalism comes to kind of permeate just the day-to-day -day practice of schooling and the language of schooling during this period makes it a relatively easy transition for schools to mobilize during wartime, right? To sort of recast what they do in the context of supporting the nation, of supporting war, these war efforts broadly. So I think that we, we can say pretty clearly, that is, a, that is a legacy of this. But, you know, I, I'm sort of wary of drawing conclusions about how what students may have learned in the classroom might have conditioned them to be, to be more eager to you know, support war efforts or to support certain political positions over time, or to even kind of shape their view of America as it relates to the rest of the world. And part part of you know my hesitance there is just that, you know, we, you know we kind of know that kids don't tend to buy everything that their teachers are selling them. You know, there's there's also that gut thing that we know is true, having been kids and knowing people who are kids today. Right? They're often quite skeptical. Um, and they're also good at knowing just what they need to say to get done with whatever they're doing, right? They, you know, you know what to say to get through it, to get the grade or to just to just get to get out of there. Um, so, you know, even when you have student papers, when when I would find these things, uh, you know, I, I rely on a student newspaper a lot in one of the chapters. Right. Um, and they're full of this patriotic language. Right. 
But it's hard to sort of say definitively, like, this is what they felt. This is what they believed. You know, they might have just been parroting what they felt, what they should say or what they heard other people saying um, to the extent that stuck with them is kind of really hard to gauge. So, yeah, hard to draw definitive conclusions, though. The funny thing is I kind of did that in my master's thesis. You know, I kind of remember <laughs> writing something to that extent, uh, you know, mid 20s over confidence, I suppose. But, you know, so I'm walking that back a little bit. You know, if you Google, if you Google me and find my master's thesis, you'll probably see what I'm talking about. Uh, so I'd implore you to read the book instead. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I definitely, I, I, it's, it's still a great question. And I think it's absolutely something worth examination. Um, uh, and it's a source, there's absolutely a source problem to deal with there, but um, that's, that's an angle on this that I think people, people would be wise to look into more in the future. You know, what, what exactly did kids take away from this? And if anything, you know, how important were schools versus just kind of parental community influences, cultural, you know, influences in sort of shaping those worldviews? Uh, that still is an open question that we have, right? That's a big debate about schooling. Um, so yeah, that's, the best answer I can give. Completely. Um, of course, there's a lot of talk, um, given Jarvis Gibbons' recent amazing book, on the fugitive tradition and kind of what people can accept or reject from education. Um, so I think that's a wise position to take. Um, inevitably, we need to talk about how this connects to the modern day. Um, your epilogue goes quite a bit into this. Um, you argue, and this is page 164, but as many of us who follow American politics, American history might know, schools not only have a starring role in modern politics, they're often the key battlegrounds for all kinds of debates um, in a polarised nation. To kind of concretize that in the context of this movement, what do you see as the specific legacies of this movement today? How does that link up to these present struggles? Um, and, you know, ultimately looking at back and looking at the state of American public education today, do you think the reformers would like the picture they see at the moment? Do you think they would have considered that this was more success or more failure um, in their initial goals, um, as we said in the beginning, to elevate the quality of politics and ease social tensions? Right. Um, you know, <clears throat> that you know, on the one hand, public schools have become such a huge part of American life now in a way that would have been hard for even, I think, their biggest boosters to imagine around the turn of the 20th century. You know, from kindergarten all the way through high school, sometimes even pre-K, you know, we spend so much of our lives in schools and conversations about schooling are, are such a big part of, it's just in the air, it's such a big part of our lives. Um, you know, even for people who are out of school, for people who don't have kids, like, schooling is is huge it's in the air and it's it's also you know more people go to school for longer periods of time and yeah it's 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 a really amazing change um and that's definitely a legacy of this era era right um but yeah you know obviously we haven't stopped arguing about schools <laughs> certainly um nor have they unified us politically right um 
again, this is something you can connect to, you know, you name it is in terms of movements in the progressive era, right? They're all sort of cast in these sort of utopian terms. You know, if we adopt this change, everything's going to be, you know, this is going to solve it, right? I mean, you know, prohibition, whatever, that was always the sort of implication. Um, that was the way they thought. And of course, you know, that hasn't happened, right? I mean, I hope if there's, you know, I think maybe a takeaway from this book is maybe that much of much of that has to do in this kind of educational context with the fact that there really never was and still has never really been a consensus over sort of what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be kind of a patriotic citizen. Um, and I hope that kind of comes through, you know, nationalism, I think for these reformers really worked as a framing device for school reform and as a, uh, as kind of something they could rally behind precisely because it was a big tent, uh, not because it signaled a specific set of values or ideas. Um, and so we still grapple with those questions in schools, right? They, and that's why they're kind of still these, they're still ground zero for so many kind of culture wars over what it means to be an American. Um, you know, we're seeing that now in so many different ways. And and that's been true for the past century, basically, right? Um, so yeah, the legacy of this is is complex to say the least. On one hand, I, I definitely think you can draw a line to just the massive growth of education and just its, you know, kind of immense importance in our day-to-day -day lives uh, to this kind of period. But yeah, it's also sort of opened up some new questions and, and kind of sown the seeds of different kinds of conflict uh, that often are rooted in schools. So Great. Great. Um, as I often tell, unenthusiastic 18-year-olds who first walked into American history classroom for the first time, <laughs> the best books are the books that um, reveal how we got to where we are now for all the good things and all the bad things um, in the United States at the moment. In this book, certainly does that um expansive wide-ranging colorful points um it really does um suggest how we came to the state um that we're in today so really exciting to read and i'd recommend all listeners to read it um maybe before we go as we're running out of time here um what's what's next for you um do you have any next projects or at the montana historical society uh yeah yeah, right. Um, you know, uh, you know, my day to day, I work as an editor, which is something I love. Like I like working on kind of regional history. It's a lot of fun. And I like to have a lot of different things come across the desk and to just learn other uh, kind of facets about, you know, my region and the world around me. That's something I'll never stop getting a kick out of. But yeah, I, I, I do. I, I have some projects running in the background. Um, it's hard to say what form they'll take eventually might just be articles could be something else but yeah I'm always looking and and you know I can't get away from education there's still you know schools continue to fascinate me in one way or another uh, whether I'm kind of working on a higher education project that's that's more rooted in the later 20th century um, which is kind of real which is a real change for me but I also have some kind of half finished work on a uh school lands in the late 19th century you know um so so i, I i've got a couple of things that i'm tinkering with um 
and yeah i plan to keep doing it it's it's fun um and yeah i i'm really grateful that people uh, have checked out the book and it's great to have this conversation about it and yeah I, I hope it's useful to people definitely you know that's why we do these things right um we understand the the value of the conversation and we want to we want to be able to contribute to it you know as a way to thank the people who who did it before us so yeah that's kind of our way of paying it forward in one way or another so yeah um yeah no i'm grateful um so and really appreciated the chance to talk to talk about it today great thank you that's a wonderful note on as we consider ourselves in this tradition all those implications for it um as I say, Making Schools America, Nationalism and the Origins of Modern Educational Politics um, out now with Johns Hopkins University Press came out last year. So available to purchase this very minute. Uh, Dr. Ewart, thank you very much for your time today. Um, thank you for your wonderful questions. Um, congratulations on the book. And yeah, thank you for spending time with us today and uh, giving us your wisdom and knowledge. So thank you. Thank you.